This podcast is brought to you on Roku and Fire TV by Pod Nation Podcast TV. Find us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever podcasts are broadcast. Download our app and never miss a show with video on demand as well as exclusive content found only on Pod Nation TV. Live from Hong Kong, it's the Monster Island Film Vault, episode 84, John LeMay versus Mighty Peking Man. Hello, Kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, Monster Island's film curator, Nate Marchand, still coming to you live from the mobile studio in Ubermogura in Hong Kong, because we still got a little bit more kaiju wrangling to do while we're here. Yeah, sure, Jimmy, I know you've been having a good time, but we've had some harrowing adventures while we were here. Not all of them necessarily exciting, but you know what they say about comedy it's just tragedy plus time so <laughs> but i'm now going to introduce you to our guest for today who is definitely not tragic <laughs> he is the unearther of lost toku films and jimmy's former flame war nemesis <laughs> yeah let's not do that again john lemay hey guys thanks for having me on yeah, I wish you could have joined us here in Hong Kong in Ubermogra. You would love Ubermogra. It's not as fancy as Mechanicong Mark II, but it's been home for, oh, geez, a little over a month or so now. <laughs> yeah, well, you, I mean, you know me. I'm on the no-fly list, so it, it oh, is. Oh, yeah. Is. Yeah, yeah. John LeMay, troublemaker. That, it, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you're you're busy doing a lot of stuff right now. You were uh, you telling me before we went on the air that you're you were having board meetings with local museums and nonprofits. Oh, look at you, fancy pants! Yeah, well, we don't <laughs> care about that. I am working on a book on lost and unmade dinosaur movies, though. That's probably oh, what our our listeners, yeah. Yeah, you're really leaning into that niche, aren't you? The, the yeah. whole lost films thing. I mean, it's it's been your biggest hit. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and like any good writer, once you realize that you've got a profitable series, you stick with it. <laughs> yeah, get, give the people what they want. Yeah, give the people what they want. It sounds like I'm going to be adding to my library <laughs> even more <laughs> with yeah. this new, with this new book. I mean, it's already a bit of a joke around here that hardly an episode goes by where I'm not citing your books. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's funny too because I have these beautiful novels I'm doing now too, and like nobody cares and they don't sell, but the film history is still going strong. So <laughs> I got that at least. Uh, maybe you should try if marketing those novels under a different name you never know yeah <laughs> you know that that is a thing that's why a lot of authors if they jump into other genres they'll use pen names yeah because someone will see a, a book of a different genre by that author and they're like oh there's no way he'd be good at that or why would i read yeah. that you know that sort of a thing maybe so. i should use jimmy's name oh <laughs> Oh, man, you're incensing him over there. Jeez. 
Let's not restart the flame war, okay? It, it, it's already weird. I, it's, you guys aren't even on the same social media. At least I don't think you are anymore. I don't know. Did you join I, the I get, on I Twitter? Can, I was allowed back on Twitter after Elon bought it. Oh, okay. There, yeah, there you go. I mean, we just finished dealing with another obnoxious rich guy on the island a few months ago. Cameron Winter. He decided to buy a controlling share and. Then he sold it back after a oh, year yeah. because yeah, Godzilla the series. I remember him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> what did uh, our frenemy WHG3 call him, Jimmy? Oh, yeah. The white headed ninny muggins. Mm. No, ninny muffin. Yeah. That's what it, the white headed ninny muffin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, if people thought Elon buying Twitter was crazy, try dealing with Cameron Winter for a year mm, on the island. Yeah. You know, I could tell you stories, John, but we're yeah. not here to talk about that. We're here because I'm tapping into some of your Kong unmade knowledge here, which is funny because the first, actually, the first two times I had you on the show, we were talking about Kong films. I had you on to do a special episode talking about two unmade Kong films related to King Kong versus Godzilla. And then I brought you on to talk about King Kong lives because you unironically like that movie. <laughs> oh yeah. I love it. I take it totally seriously. I love it. <laughs> but I'm bringing you on to tap into more of that. Like I said, to talk about mighty Peking man. <laughs> Oops, I forgot to mention that every country has a monster they're afraid of in their nation. Every monster has a country, yeah, station they call their home. Yes, me and John's coverage of Mighty Peking Man is part of our season four theme. The Monster Island World Tour. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I love I love that movie. It's my favorite. I don't even want to call it a Kong ripoff. I feel like that's mean, but I, I just think it's a great monster movie. Oh, okay. That'll be interesting because, well, we'll get into it a little bit later. Although some of you, in case anyone's a little bit confused, you may have seen, at least in the United States, you may have seen this film under the title Goliathon. Goliathon? I wish it was Goliathon because it sounds like Leviathan. <laughs> yeah, but it's maybe Goliathon so. with an O. It's weird. <laughs> like Marathon. Like Marathon, yeah. Yeah. And then there were some foreign titles that were kind of funny, like Colossus of the Congo, which makes no sense because it doesn't take place in the Congo. No, uh-uh. <laughs> like, you know, some of the European titles. It's all kinds of wacky, but you'll learn all about that in the entertaining info dump. But before we get to that, I need to let you know, relatedly, we have not one, but two Toku topics today. One that's more directly related to the type of movie this is, if you want to call it a type. And the other one being something that I have you to thank for. I added this to the list because of something I read in your book. So first off, we'll be talking about Kongsploitation, because that is a thing. <laughs> yeah. It is a type of film of which this is one of them. And the, I should say, one of the inspirations for the film, which is the Peking Man Fossil. And let me tell you, when I researched it, it ended up being a lot more interesting than I thought it would. Uh, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Right now. 
we need to get to the entertaining info dump, which I am contractually obligated to mention was written by my intrepid producer. Ah Wang, aka Utam, aka Goliathon, is a protective but often violent giant ape man living in Himalayan India. He rescues little Awe as a child after her plane crashes and raises her. After he is taken to Hong Kong, he fights to escape his cage and save Awe from the villains and then elude the Chinese military. Samantha, aka Awe, is the native and innocent wild woman raised by Ah Wang. She falls in love with Johnny, which makes her willing to go to Hong Kong to be with him and Ah Wang, for whom she advocates while he is held captive and pursued by the military. Her brave and adventurous love interest, Johnny Fang, acts as a guide on the expedition that goes to India to find Ah Wang and get over a nasty breakup. After returning to Hong Kong, he slowly comes to agree with Ah Wei that Ah Wang shouldn't be exploited and then tries to find her as she searches for Ah Wang. Lu Tien is the greedy and exploitative promoter who brings Ah Wang back to Hong Kong so that he can make money off of the extraordinary creature. The human and kaiju plotlines are distinct from each other but unify for long periods throughout the film. Several characters have unrelated subplots that do cross over with the kaiju plotline, although they are underdeveloped. While a victim of exploitation, Ah Wang is the problem. Ah Wei calms Ah Wang to keep him from attacking Johnny while in the jungle. In Hong Kong, Ah Wang is forced to fight bulldozers, which he destroys. He's kept in a giant cage from which he breaks out to save Ah Wei from being raped by Lu Tien, killing the villain. While running wild in the city, Ah Wang battles tanks, infantry, and helicopters, destroying or eluding them all. Ah Wang climbs the Jardine house and is attacked by more helicopters, which he also destroys. Ah Wei tries to talk him down, but the ape man is too riled up. The problem is solved when the military plants explosives in the top floor of the Jardine house just below Ah Wang. Johnny fails to stop the detonation, and the explosion sets Ah Wang on fire. He falls off the Jardine house and onto a smaller building below. Johnny finds an injured and unconscious Ah Wei, but her fate is left ambiguous. The script by Quang Ni is a relatively simple romantic adventure story highly reminiscent of King Kong. While there's an ensemble cast, it's focused mostly on a few key characters who, as previously mentioned, have underdeveloped subplots. Mighty Peking Man was one of Shaw Brothers' most ambitious films, so there's a lot of money on screen, so to speak. Like with Super Inframan, Japanese special effects artists, most notably suit maker Keizo Morase, were brought in to create the tokusatsu effects. They had to work with a Hong Kong crew who was inexperienced with special effects, but the results are still surprisingly good. The Ah Wang suit is a marvel of craftsmanship. It's expressive and sturdy. Morase famously wore it himself to perform the movie's final stunt, where the ape man falls off a skyscraper. The miniatures aren't quite as polished or convincing as Toho's or Tsuburaya Productions at their peaks, but they do look on par with what was being produced in Japan at the time. The location filmmaking and large crowds of extras are what add the most production value. Overall, the movie could easily compete with any contemporary tokusatsu. 
This is a light movie with a moderate amount of gravitas, most of which is allotted to Ah Wei and Ah Wang, especially toward the end. With its inexplicable ape-man and bikini-clad wild woman, this is a fantastical film. While Shaw Brothers dabbled in the kaiju genre with Super Inframan, they went all in with this. This was China's first true kaiju movie, which makes it quite experimental for its time and place. Hence why Japanese artists were brought in to help make the movie. It was also a bold choice to have a Western woman, Evelyn Kraft, as the star in an otherwise very Chinese production. Even so, this movie reinforced the style of the 1976 remake of King Kong with its grungy style, character dynamics, and story. That being said, it does diverge in some regards, such as Ah Wang being a father figure to Ah Wei, as opposed to a quote-unquote romantic interest, which is more akin to Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan. Mighty Peking Man was made in light of the popularity of disaster films and the then-upcoming release of the King Kong remake, and because of the waning interest in martial arts films. Shaw Brothers hoped this would be an international success due to these factors. To that end, it was meant to entertain a general Chinese and international audience, as well as appeal to Shaw Brothers' existing fan base, kaiju fans, and perhaps Kong fans. The movie cost around 600 Hong Kong dollars, estimated 500,000 to 1 million dollars USD, to produce, and while Hong Kong box office numbers are unavailable, it underperformed locally when released August 11, 1976. It was quietly released in America March 1980 under the title Goliathon and went largely unnoticed. Quentin Tarantino's short-lived Rolling Thunder Pictures re-released it on the Midnight Circuit April 23, 1999, where it grossed a humble $17,368. Critics were generally favorable to the movie, notably Roger Ebert, and it maintains a cult following to this day. The only major difference in the dub version is the characters are given English-language names, and the monster's name is changed to Utam. Several forces are at play. Civilization and nature clash throughout the movie. Humanity infringes on the mountains. Ah Wei rejects civilized clothing. Ah Wang is out of place in the city, etc. Ah Wei's naivete contrasts with Johnny's worldliness. Johnny's ex-girlfriend becomes a career woman, bucking traditional marriage and, presumably, family. This creates tension later when she attempts to reconcile with him, not knowing he is now in a relationship with Ah Wei. Corporate greed seeks to exploit nature, i.e. Ah Wang, with disastrous results. Johnny's reticence to relationships is challenged by his attraction to Ah Wei. A few themes are present in the movie. Modern media is shown to be gaudy, even vapid. No objections are raised toward Ah Wei and Johnny's interracial love. Romance is presented as beautiful and fulfilling in their relationship. Johnny's ex learns the hard way that career isn't a guarantee of happiness and seeks reconciliation. Corporate greed and exploitation are demonized. Ah Wang, like King Kong before him, becomes a victim of that greed and exploitation, joining a long-standing tragic tradition of commenting on this issue. Contractual obligations fulfilled! Time for me and John to unpack this Kongsploitation... Classic? All right, John, to start us off, 
you, you mentioned that this is you said it was one of your favorites right yeah i would say it is my favorite kong ripoff movie absolutely okay so what's your history with this movie when was, uh, where did you see it the first time all that fun stuff I would love to say I just stumbled across it of my own volition, but I think I probably forced myself to watch it for Kong Unmade. I have a feeling that that's my mm-hmm. memory because it's not something I saw as a child. Mm. So I think I think I literally watched it just to review it for Kong Unmade. Mm. See, I wouldn't be surprised by that because from what I could gather from Jimmy's entertaining info dump was it played really only twice in america it was released in 19 well some sources said 1979 which was a little confusing but most said 1980 on television if i remember correctly as goliathon and then it it had a pretty limited theatrical run in 1999 thanks to quentin tarantino because apparently quentin tarantino loves this movie Hey, he's got good taste. He probably <laughs> likes King Kong Lives as well. I don't know. <laughs> I'd be curious to find out. But it, yeah. it was released by Rolling Thunder Pictures, which was a little division of Miramax that he ran. And it played the Midnight Circuit in 1999, and that got people reacquainted with the movie. That was apparently when Roger Ebert discovered it and actually gave it three stars. Yeah, he likes a Super Inframan as well, though, which is kind of suspect. Yeah, which was the previous uh, movie uh, that I played as part, uh, oh, that we covered as part of our new series, the you know Monster Island World Tour. Well, so I, I got to throw this in there since I'm the unmade guy. Uh, did did you know to mention that they were actually going to make In for a Girl next or In for a Woman? Yes, I think we did. Okay, yeah. cool. It's, uh, in for a Woman. Yeah, because there's even a line in the movie about it's like, yeah, is there an in for woman? Huh. <laughs> it's like there was sequel baiting, but it didn't quite work. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, but anyway, so, you know, it's funny because this is also a Shaw Brothers movie. So we get two Shaw Brothers movies and they're very different from each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mighty but, Peking uh, Man is actually good. Oh, hot take, hot take. <laughs> I'll take, but I never saw this movie in its entirety until I had to cover it for this movie. And depending on how you want to look at it, a little bit annoying. A previous DVD release of this by Rolling Thunder only had the dub, which annoyed me a little. And then Arrow Video released it, but they released it as part of a box set with a bunch of Shaw Brothers martial arts films. So it really sticks out as kind of weird in that regard. I don't know why they felt the need to package it <laughs> with all of those. Yeah, I think it could have stood on its own. I think so, but the special features were pretty nice. Although the guy who did the commentaries, I think his name was Travis Crawford, at points, I think, just seemed befuddled by the movie because <laughs> he sounds like he's more of a a Shaw Brothers studio guy. Or a martial arts movie, or a martial arts movie guy. I think he, but he's not really a kaiju guy. So he was, like I said, he, like I said, I think he was confused. <laughs> so there were points where I'm looking at, so like my other, my other research isn't quite agreeing with you, and <laughs> you know he's rattling off all this stuff about like the Japanese filmmakers that who worked on it and things like that, and he's just rattling things off, and I'm like, do you know what any of that means? <laughs> 
Yeah, you you can tell when someone doesn't like the Godzilla movies and Tokusatsu. It's very evident, and they usually laugh at them. You know, I've I've never been one to laugh at the the older special effects because I understand you know it's just old and they didn't have a budget always. Right, he wasn't laughing at it. Like oh. I said, I think he was just confused by it. I almost wonder if maybe he was just somebody's like, oh, I love Shaw Brothers movies. I want to yeah. do a commentary uh, for this box set. Thank you, Arrow. And they're like, you get Mighty Peking, man. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be rough. He didn't know what to do with that. I don't know. I could be completely wrong on that. He still had some interesting information in his commentary. Yeah. I, I guess will say- Arrow's commentaries are really hit and miss because I heard that some of the Gamera commentaries were just literally... Not all of them. I think it was just one of them. Like maybe for Gamera Super Monster, it was kind of just the commentator watching the movie and describing what you're seeing. I that commentary was weird. It was very very weird. But that was actually one of the new ones that they did because they ported over the commentary, mm. any commentaries that had been done before, like yeah. August Ragone's commentary on the original film was carried yeah, over. Yeah, that was, a, that was but, a good one. But then you had David Callet doing Gamera versus Giron, and it's one of the best hmm. film commentaries, for, at least for Tokusatsu, that I've ever heard. <laughs> I have to listen to it. I don't think I listened to that one. Because David Callet is amazing. Anyway, we're not here to talk about uh, all of those yeah, things. getting off topic. Yeah, yeah, but you know, welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault. So, I'm going to be honest with you, John. I don't think I like this movie as much as you. It is. Uh, it, it was, It's a bit of a baffling movie for me <laughs> at points because I'm like, I'm getting the kaiju stuff and it's clearly following the King Kong formula, but then it's doing a very weird spin on the King Kong formula. And I'm trying to get attached to these characters, but it's weird. And then you have. I don't even know. That's the other thing that's confusing is nobody can agree on what to name these characters. Most people, when I read up on this movie, use the names from the dub, but then the subtitles in the subtitled version have Chinese names and it just throws me off completely. Like mm-hmm. when I was talking with you, you call the blonde girl in this Samantha because that's her name in the dub. Yeah. But the subtitles called her Ah Wang. Mm-hmm. And then there's a few people who will call the monster in this Goliathon. Most people call him Utam or Utam. I'm not mm-hmm. 100% sure how to say it. That's the more common one. But in the subtitles, his name is Ah Wang. Oh, his name is too? No, it's Ah Wei and Ah Wang. Oh, he's Ah Wang and she's Ah Wei. Okay. Good point, Jimmy. I should check my notes to make sure. <laughs> yeah, I think you may have said Ah Wang first. Uh, no, Ah Wei is like... the. Okay, Ah Wei is the girl. Ah Wang. <laughs> Well, let's say she doesn't monster. look like an Ah Wang. <laughs> yeah, no, it's Ah Wei is the is the girl, and Ah Wang is the monster. So there you go. So, you know, maybe just for simplicity, we'll go with Samantha and Utam. <laughs> yeah, and I think the guy's name in the dub he, they changed his name to. I think it's Johnny. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, Johnny. Yeah, I don't remember what his name is in Chinese, which I suppose makes me a terrible, terrible person. (laughs) But we'll just stick with those just for the sake of simplicity. So I wasn't sure what to do with this. And honestly, I mean, there are people who genuinely like this. The people who worked on it think it's a, you know, it's a marvel because it was made back with old timey special effects and that they consider it a triumph because of that. There's a lot of it's people who worked on it. 
including Keizo Morase. There's an interview with Keizo Morase who says, oh, yeah, I love it because it doesn't have CGI. It's old-fashioned oh, special. yeah, effects. and Keizo Morase came to one of the more recent G-Fests, and I yes. think he was, yeah. And I, th- I think he actually showed up in the room with, oh, who, what's the name of the, the little indie studio comes in and they always make a short film at G-Fest every year. Can't what I, I can't remember that part, but I I just remember hearing that he was dressed in the Peking Man suit yeah, at he, Jesus, like he showed around. up dressed up uh, dressed up in that. But I, I'm just looking up this one comment from the guy who wrote a, a, a little essay in about this in the Arrow video booklet that came with the set. So yeah, Simon Abrams. I feel like this is kind of an apt way of describing the movie for me, which is it is a triumph of bad taste over common sense. <laughs> I like the that's funny. <laughs> funny. I, I mean, because, yeah. because it's very melodramatic. The commentator was trying to defend it a little bit because he said, yeah, the dub and some of the subtitles make it seem really silly. But, you know, the people who worked on it took it pretty uh, pretty seriously but there's just things in it where i'm just like really guys <laughs> case in point samantha's outfit let's be honest <laughs> <laughs> i think people remember that more than the yeah. big ape <laughs> no so that jogs a memory for me because i have a friend he he's he's the guy who did the cover for the first edition of the lost films with the giant rats on it mm-hmm. i don't remember he's not he's not a godzilla person Really, and I don't remember how or why I was. I maybe I was watching part of Mighty Peking Man or something on YouTube. I don't remember why, but I I know he watched that entire movie, and it was just because of Samantha, because he is not a a tokusatsu person, and he watched that entire thing, and I know it was because of her that cracked me up. I mean, Evelyn Craft is a beautiful, beautiful woman. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so that is a reason to watch the movie if you're not into Tokusatsu. I mean, let's face it, we've all watched worse, you know, just just for that. Just for uh, yeah. the actress. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's that's why I think for some people this is an ex, it, this is an exploitation film. Because <laughs> yeah. you, know, you just look at that and you're just like, yeah, we get it. Eye candy. That's, that's why you're going to watch this. But there is no denying she is... I've good Lord. (laughs) She is a beautiful, beautiful woman. There's no way around that. And and the thing that's interesting is she was actually Swiss and how she got the part is pretty interesting. They did want the Shaw brothers did want to have a foreign actress in this role. And they, they auditioned several different, uh, well, I think like a bunch of different people including an Australian woman I'm trying to find her name here really quick, but she ended up not getting the part. I think either I saw a picture of her online. I think she's actually brunette and Evelyn Kraft has the blondest blonde hair you've yeah. ever seen. I'm sure they were trying to go for like Faye Ray type thing. with the Oh, blonde very Faye Ray, but and Jessica Lang too. Jessica Lang. Yeah. Well, that would have, that's the more immediate inspiration because yeah. they intended this movie to be released before King Kong 76 got made it to Hong Kong. But there was a lot of, it was a bit of a troubled production. It took way longer than they were expecting, partly because the Japanese crew doing the special effects for the, mm-hmm. to them, they took way too much time. Because Shaw Brothers is used to cranking these movies out really fast. 
so it ended up coming out several months after King Kong 76 came out. Ironically, released uh, it, it, it King Kong 76 was released by Shaw Brothers' more most immediate competition, which was Golden Harvest. <laughs> hmm. I did a whole thing about you know, a, a brief history of martial arts film and talked a lot about where Shaw Brothers came from and Golden Harvest and all that sort of stuff. So if you want to know more about that, go listen to that episode. Yeah, Australian actress, oh, excuse me, Australian model, Julie Catherine Stwaridge. I hope I said that right. But like I said, she was she's a Swiss model, did a little bit of acting. She was in Hong Kong as a tourist. And then somebody at Shaw Brothers got a, saw a picture of her. It's just like, we need her for this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was because Hong Kong was hosting the Miss Universe pageant at the time. Mm. And the the Shaw Brothers hosted parties and tours of the studio to all 72 of the contestants. And then she w- Miss Kraft was uh, having her makeup done for publicity and her first few shots. And then the makeup artist just remarked about how, she, how beautiful she was and that she should have been a contestant at the pageant. Hmm. I don't think I had any of that in my book. I feel bad now. That's funny because it came from that source you recommended for me. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that was a kind of a new, uh, cool-ass cinema. Yeah, yeah, which was actually written back in 2014. <laughs> mm-hmm. But here's the funny thing. Miss Craft, she was actually a conservative woman. She did like feminism, and she was a firm believer in monogamy and marriage. <laughs> but she would also do things that freak the director out, like when they did the waterfall scene. He said, hey, I need you to get into the water. And she just like, she just stripped off her costume and jumped right in and it freaked everybody out. (laughs) (laughs) And she was a little bit of a liability because she's walking around in this skimpy, you know, know, it's a goat skin. It's made out of goat skin. The skimpy goat skin bikini. And every time they would go out and film in public, everyone is just staring at her. (laughs) Yeah. The fun, I think the funniest story I read was when they did one of the, the big scenes is it was filmed partially in India and they had a scene that had, I think, at least 100, if not more extras in it. <laughs> like all the men in the crowd were just staring at her and their wives yeah. kept hitting them. <laughs> That's funny. It's like, I, I mean, I, I don't blame you. I, I just, <laughs> yeah. But she's, I don't, I don't know. How do you feel about how they handle her in this movie? Because, yeah, she's eye candy. I think it gives the movie a a reputation for being an exploitation film, but does it really qualify as such for you? No, I don't think so. I, I wouldn't call it exploitation film. It still actually has a fairly innocent atmosphere to it, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. But I would also even make that argument, believe it or not, about uh, Hammer's The Vampire Lovers movie. Mm. Kind of has this innocent atmosphere to it, even though it does have the nudity and all that. Mm. But I like the idea, though, that they basically combined the King Kong story with Tarzan, or, or maybe I should say like Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. Yeah, I saw one other one of my other sources compared her to Sheena. Yeah, so I I like that idea of of combining the King Kong with that, and so that way the girl isn't afraid of the ape, and it's like her giant pet slash 
big brother, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's because it's not a quote-unquote romantic thing like it typically is in Kong, we'll yeah. say, even if it's not reciprocal. Like You look at the 1933 film, I mean, I think it's generally interpreted that way. I don't yeah. know. It, I don't think it's even there. It's meant to be taken that way, but it's always, like I said, it's always interpreted that way. It's very clear here that it's not, but it, like the guy who did the commentary, Mr. Crawford, he was describing the quote unquote sexual politics between Samantha and Utam as being quote unquote progressive and equal. And I'm like, <laughs> what? And I'm like, what are you even That's talking hilarious. about? This is in no way sexual. No, I think he's. I think the point is the ape is like her surrogate parent because he rescues her. Yeah, he rescues her as a child. She was her her parents died in a plane crash, and she she survived. And then Utam found her, took care of her. Yeah, I love it when they try to read things into these movies that aren't even there. It's just it's laughable. Yeah, it's trust me. I've read some pretty absurd essays about say king kong that i'm just like where are you people getting this i think this says more about you and he was bringing up this i forget let me look it up here really quick but he was bringing up this book i'm like i feel like i've read stuff like this about other things that was examining i guess this was, this was one of the things that he was befuddled by he didn't understand the appeal of these ape and woman movies hmm. as he put it and he brought up a book that he came across and read part of that took this Freudian approach to it. As soon as he said Freudian, I'm like, okay, we're going into dangerous territory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whenever you bring up Freud. <laughs> I was like, can we not? But he <sighs> But yeah, he went there. The book he mentioned was called Why Women Love Apes. <laughs> and according to him, the thesis statement of the book was that it's not because of some weird female fantasy it's about masculine insecurities huh thanks whoever I, wrote I, that i don't i <laughs> like, like don't even get it but <laughs> i i don't get it either because i don't know how I, how can you read sexual politics in this i just, yeah. that just confounds me and Mr. Crawford, if you're listening to this, because I hope you are, I could tell you why the ape and beautiful woman story keeps working. It's because it's Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Tale as old as time as the Disney version, the original good version told us. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's yeah. classic fairy tale. That's really what it boils down to. But like I said, he made a valiant defense of it as best he could. He likened it to a two to three minute pop song. He said it lacks the pompacity, the uh, the, the pomposity, I should say, of modern blockbusters. <laughs> they want to be a blockbuster, but they want to be about something. And he's like, this movie doesn't pretend to even do that. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, actually, if you want to look for a deeper meaning to the film, it, to me, it was that city life corrupts and they should have mm -hmm. just stayed in the jungle where they were happy. That, that was the moral to me. Right, and I, I think... And Jimmy agreed with you in his entertaining info dump. And I yeah. actually found some lines from the director from that article that you recommended to me that actually touched on that. So I think you're onto something here, John. If you, if you didn't good. read that here, no, I, I will. I did here. Let me validate you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I love being uh, here. You go. Here you go. So King ape, because that was the original working title. And then it became, I think, orangutan king. Mm, yeah. When it was released in when it was released in Hong Kong, and then internationally it was Mighty Peking Man. 
But it says, King Abe is about the nature of man and beast. On the surface, it's just a fantasy disaster movie. Because that was, just to note, that was something else that the Shaw Brothers were tapping into. It wasn't just King Kong 76. They are also trying to get in on the disaster movie craze at the mm-hmm. time. Which you and I talked a bit about because you were on for Prophecies of Nostradamus. And we talked a bit about it. All right, that. yeah. But what I like about this script is that it explores the treachery and cruelty of man compared to the so-called beastly nature of an ape. And that was from director Ho Meng Hua. And then here's another one for you. He said, something else to grab your attention is this movie besides, oh, in this movie, besides the special effects is the script, the relationship between human nature and the so-called beast nature. This is what I like best about this picture. The script exposes the treachery and cruelty of human beings. I'm not trying to make a preachy movie. Hey, Hollywood, you might want to listen to this. But the audience is expecting a film that is both highly entertaining and has a certain story element attached to it. Okay, good. Yeah, Yeah. I think it definitely came through. Yep. And then let's just see. There's... Oh, that's when he talked about when they did the lagoon scene. And here's one more related to that. This is him comparing Mighty Peking Man to King Kong and trying to differentiate the two. The content of Orangutan King and King Kong are absolutely different. King Kong is about the love between a woman and a beast, depending on who you talk to, I suppose. Orangutan King is is about humanity and animality. The giant is a beast, but innocent in his feelings towards man. It raises Evelyn Kraft's character from a child. It loves and cares for her. It's a kind of friendship with her. They are both deceived by the human characters outside of the jungle setting to bring the giant ape to Hong Kong for the purposes of money. Nor is Li Xiu Shen. I'm stumbling over these Chinese names already. Li Xiu Xian. It's a character entirely free of guilt. So there you go. I th- I think you're on to something, John. <laughs> yeah. Me, me and Jimmy, we're, we're not so different, you and I. Jimmy? <laughs> Those were from yeah. the director. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, but you said Jimmy also. He, he agreed with that. So Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> wow. I, if, I, I see some bridges are being mended. Yeah. We, by like the it. innocence of mighty peaking man by the innocence of mighty peaking man yeah but i do agree with you i think that that's the interesting thing about samantha is that she's dropped like just seriously drop dead gorgeous but she's weirdly innocent all at the same time yeah she's not like i i don't, I don't know what word i'm looking for she's not childlike really, well, well i was going to say she's not really like promiscuous exactly i mean she does get it on with uh johnny but like at least you know they're in love you know yeah well i think she was also kind of confused by it it's like Hmm, she never she'd never been around a a man before and then she gets around him and then suddenly these things are kind of awakened in her yeah maybe so and like i said she's just so innocent she doesn't realize that you know that she is as gorgeous as she is she doesn't really use it to her advantage she just Mm, does what she does yeah i think that's it and hilariously, there's one scene where she doesn't wear the the goatskin bikini, and it doesn't. It, I think it says more about Johnny than it does about her. <laughs> when he tries, he says, "If you're gonna if you're gonna go to civilization, you gotta dress differently." And he gives her like a leather 
halter top and oh. some hot pants. <laughs> I forgot about that. I don't just, and she hates it. She puts it on. She hates yeah. it. When I was watching, I was like, why didn't you give her a dress? Yeah. <laughs> the dress would make more sense. I think this says more about you, Johnny. <laughs> Yeah. And then what does she do? And I did read it this way. What does she do? She just she takes this leather getup off because it's it's uncomfortable. She can't stand it. And then she just lays on the bed on natural and she's just happy. I need to watch that movie again. <laughs> I'm with Jimmy. You're kind of indicting yourself a little bit here. Someone <laughs> needed to do his homework. <laughs> But oh, no, I haven't. I know I didn't. I make no pretenses. I didn't uh, watch it uh, before the show. Like, yeah, it's been at least two. Well, years rewatch it. Yeah, yeah, rewatch it. <laughs> rewatch it. Well, I looked at that as her kind of going back to what you were talking about. She's throwing off the shackles, if you want to call it that, of civilization and embracing naturalness. I guess you could say her natural wildness yeah. because it was uncomfortable. She didn't like it. And then she spends the rest of the movie just dressing how she wants. And I'm surprised nobody on the streets of Hong Kong wasn't like, who is this weirdo white woman? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, is Hong Kong really like that? Does nobody yeah. care? <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> really? They freak out when the monster shows up. Sure. But you know, Hot blonde <laughs> chick. They're like, eh. <laughs> that's probably the most unbelievable thing in the movie. I could accept. I could yeah. accept a giant ape, but no one noticing her on the streets of Hong Kong. Come on. <laughs> what do you think about the ending? The fact that it's it's kind of hint or alluded to that she dies. I I don't know what to make of the ending. I really don't. Personally, personally, I think she made it. I like to think she was okay. But yeah, the movie doesn't really tell you. And depending on who yeah. you talk to, some people say she died, some people say she didn't. Yeah, and supposedly there's an alternate ending that shows you or shows shows you that she is alive and she comes to, but I've never seen it. Uh, see, that's the one thing that's really confusing is most of my sources on this movie said there's a purported second ending, but they said it's but it didn't exist. No one's found it. But then the one article that you sent me said oh no it does exist and they and they said here's a screenshot so i was a little confused by that but then again there's also supposedly an alternate cut of this movie with more nudity yeah that's what i was thinking i heard too yeah now it's in the trailer (laughs) (laughs) yeah i remember that the nudity's in the trailer but when you watch the movie they use alternate shots where they play coy with it I, so yeah. if you're going into this thinking that you're going to get some exploitation film nudity in it, you might be a little disappointed. There, it, the movie's going to play very coy with you. Yeah, this reminds me of of the British version of when dinosaurs ruled the earth, like before the Blu-ray came out. Because I spent so much time looking for the British version with Victoria Vetri's nude scenes and I think I like I finally found it on eBay and got this copy and then I think about like a year or two later they finally released like the legitimate blu-ray and it was like <laughs> I went to all that effort you know <laughs> so may- maybe I can find yeah yeah you're not the only person who's done that <laughs> <laughs> trust me <laughs> not for that movie but for other things <laughs> how dare you throw me under the bus like that sheesh
Slander, sir. Anyway. <laughs> but no, apparently that does not exist. It's in the trailer, but they ended up not doing it, which freaked me out because when I found the trailer, I found it on YouTube. And when I got to those parts, I'm like, Arrow, how did you convince YouTube to let you post this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think YouTube knew. Well, hopefully they continue to not know because it's, <laughs> it's, it's just unfortunately we may have just made it known right now but <laughs> but still it, there, there's surprisingly little in here and even what is in there is kind of blink and you miss it yeah that's what i was thinking yeah because probably the the, the most obvious one is during the incredibly campy and melodramatic slow-mo running scene that was probably seen by who, by the creators of Baywatch. <laughs> where Samantha and Johnny are frolicking through the jungle. Yeah, that top doesn't stay on, and I almost think it's by design because it's only one <laughs> strap. Yeah. She only has one shoulder strap with this thing. And the whole time I'm looking, I was like, there's no way she stayed in that thing. <laughs> consistently, <laughs> unless they taped it. Because just there's just no way. <laughs> She pop, she uh, she pops out <laughs> while running <laughs> in slow mo, <laughs> and there's a, a few places where you kind of sort of get some glimpses if you pay really close attention. There is also that incredibly awkward scene where the sl our slimy villain tries to have his way with her. That's a little hard to watch. <laughs> Yeah, I, and then that makes me think, I mean, if you really want to talk about like weird King Kong ripoffs, did you ever talk about Yeti, giant of the 20th century? Yes, Jimmy. You missed that episode. Because okay, I was, I was going to say, like, they have this weird scene where, like, the, the girl rubs the Yeti's nipple and nobody uh, knows why. It's like, because yes. it's not really, like, it's not exactly sexual, but it's also just like a weird scene. It's like, why are you doing this? Yeah. Well, in this case, it was to make Utam very angry. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he basically goes into a, a an anti-rapist rage and just breaks yeah. out of his cage. <laughs> Destroys all of Hong Kong. Uh, yeah. Yeah. To save her. And that, you know, so, so basically whatever you do, people, uh, <laughs> let this be a warning to all of you rape leads to angry kaiju and we don't need that <laughs> yeah i don't know if we're gonna keep that line either but <laughs> i don't I think thinking. i said anything technically wrong i'm just saying <laughs> it's very much an anti-rape statement <laughs> but for what i understand that that's pretty mild compared to some other quote-unquote kong exploitation films I mean, there's a freaking porn parody of King Kong, people. <laughs> I forgot it. that. I don't believe I watched that one. No, oh, I, I haven't either, and I don't really want to. Yeah. But anyway, like I said, there's a lot we could talk about just with Miss Craft. There's a lot, a lot going on. She didn't have much of an acting career after this. She basically retired a few years later and just joined her husband's realty firm in Switzerland and then raised a family. And then sadly, sadly, died in 2009. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Very, very sad. So on to happier subjects. <laughs> what did you think of the effects in this? I think that's probably next to Miss Craft. That's the next <laughs> big draw yeah. for this movie. I mean, I know they're not great, but I think with me, I just enjoy 
knowing that these are tangible, real miniatures that uh, Sadamasa Arakawa built and then the suit, you know, it's, it's just, I don't know, even though CGI is so much more realistic, it's, it's fun to see these things that people built, you mm-hmm. know, and then just totally destroy them. But I think the miniature of Hong Kong was really well done. It was very mm-hmm. expansive, very big. Seemed like Peking Man's face had decent expression part of the time. So I, it I looked like, like it was that. a lot like what the gargantua suits where you could actually see the actor's eyes. Yeah. And I, I overall, I really like the effects. Well, and that's in large part because there were some Toho people working on this. Yeah. I actually was surprised at how good the effects were. I felt like personally. Don't don't get me started about the whole CGI and realism thing because realism has never really been a thing in Japanese film. They're yeah, more about creating true. mood and inviting you into a world as opposed yeah. to making something that looks quote unquote real. But like I said, I was surprised by this. And the reason why that they are as good as they are is I think honestly it really boils down to three men. One is Kuroda. I can't remember his first name offhand right now. Give me a second. But is it Yoshiyuka ate... Kuroda? Is that something right? Yes. Yoshiyuka? Okay. Yeah, there you go. Look Oof, at you. I still got Look it. Look at you. A gentleman it. and a scholar here. It's all coming back. He was the director of the first Daimajine. And he Right, okay. Yep. And he worked on this a little bit, did a lot of the concept art, the designs, because Utam earlier uh, early on in the process was going to look more like a Yeti and less ape-like. He became more ape-like as time went on. And you know, so you have him, but he didn't stay involved with the whole thing. And most of the effects were handled by Keizo Morase, as we mentioned. He designed the suit, which we'll talk about the suit here in a moment. And Sadamasa Arikawa, the heir apparent, well, not heir apparent, but the protege of Eiji Tsuburaya. Yeah, and it seems like, uh, didn't Koichi Kawakita have some yes. small involvement, right? Yeah. Yes, he, he did. He was, uh, I believe he was an assistant director. So there's a lot of big names yeah. working on the special effects with this. I halfway wonder if Juriyoshi uh, Nakano didn't do it just because he was still busy in Japan at that time. I think he would have been doing like War in Space with Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, of course he was, Jimmy. You would know about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, which is too bad because I'm sure Nakano loved the fire and explosions at the end. Yeah. Yeah, that <laughs> with- was pretty, that was like a really extreme way to try and top King Kong with like lighting him on fire and like crashing into the building. And I kind of felt like it was too much. It, it was cool to look at, but I felt like it was too much. Yeah, really? Yeah, it's it is pretty extreme. Although, let's be honest, Utam is a little bit more durable than Kong was at this point. <sighs> yeah, I mean, they had to really work to hurt him. <laughs> yeah, he had a whole military after him. Yeah, <laughs> including a white military commander who's almost as crazy as the one from King Kong lives. Yeah, <laughs> but. Let's talk about the suit here a little bit. It's a surprise. I would say it's a surprisingly good suit. And like I said, Marase put it together. He actually made it with real human hair. Oh, yeah. Didn't he say that a lady on the studio grew her hair like really long? Yep. She had long, dark hair, and she cut it and donated it to the suit. Wow. 
He also helped edit the the movie so they could get the toku scenes in there, integrate them better. Because this was done like a Japanese production where they basically had two teams. One handling the drama segments, one handling the effects. Even the stuff that involved the actors, Murase and Arakawa handled that. Including the Tarzan swinging scenes for Miss Craft. But famously, not only did Mr. Murase make the suit he had to wear it yeah and didn't he wear it for specifically for the final scene where he plummets to his death yep because the actor that they originally wanted his name was yuan chung yan his brother was a famous choreographer yuan wu ping and he did not want to wear the suit for the final scene because he thought it would be too dangerous and he wanted to be insured. So he wouldn't do it unless he was insured. Where they're like, well, we can't do that because that's going to eat up more time than we have. So he said, then I'm not doing it. And then Morassi said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, and then Morassi said, how many, the, asked Arakawa, was like, how many of these suits do we have that we have left? Because <laughs> this was the last thing that they filmed. Yeah. He said, how many of these do we have left? Three. Okay, we'll do it three times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know very many special effects guys who can say that they threw themselves into the work like that. Yeah, on fire. On fire! I mean, it's it's yeah. nuts when you actually watch the end of this movie. Just how much... That suit is on fire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Murase is something else, you know, and he's still going. and He's doing, like, the brush of God right now, I think. And right, it up. which I can't wait to see. That's oh, and he good. said he came up with the idea for that while he was shooting Peking Man, I think. Really? Right. Yeah, that's what my memory tells me. I've got to be careful on my memory, but I'm pretty sure he came up with the idea on Peking Man. Mr. Fact Checker over there is going to check on that for his follow-up blog. Yeah, I bet he will. Uh, okay, calm down, fellas, okay? Okay, no more flame wars, all right? We, we're ta- we're, although we're, we're talking about a flaming monkey right now. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was low hanging fruit. Yeah, a little bit there. See Just what I did there? Because apes also they grab oh, low hanging fruit. Okay, yeah, there, there you go. Thank you. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a little rim shot there for you. Yeah. So that's why I would say things turn out pretty uh, pretty well with this. And I know Arakawa specifically worked on the scene and the stadium with the trucks. Which is actually pretty impressive, I have to say. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of ambitious special effects in this, and which I think is one of the things that sounds like it frustrated the Chinese crew members because they weren't used to having this much special effects, which is weird because the director also did some Monkey King movies in the late 60s that were very popular. Never seen them, but I would guess those would have to be pretty effects intensive. Yeah. I guess not. So they weren't used to having to take as long as they did to make this movie. They like this guy said he was actually contracted to do f- to make four movies a year. <laughs> the director make four movies a year for Shaw Brothers. He said he didn't usually hit that many, but he, you know, but they still let him keep working. <laughs> hmm. So sometimes he would feel like, okay, I need to get, I need to make more of these to make up, uh, make it up. But it took him about a year from start to finish to get this thing done yeah i seem to yeah i remember the chinese crew complained about the special effects technicians and just how long it took and they didn't expect that 
yeah, they just weren't used to that. They were used to cranking out movies pretty fast. But they, I'd also think they weren't used to making, like I said, movies with this, with this high a level of special effects. But th- we could also, I've mentioned the the director a little bit, some of the stuff he's done. We should also talk about the screenwriter because this guy, this guy is nuts. Okay, <laughs> I always like paying attention to screenwriters because I feel like they are unsung heroes. Yeah. In the film world, hence why I, I, Danny Demana and I did a whole presentation on Kimura and Sekizawa at G Fest to a standing room, standing room only crowd, I might add. But this guy was crazy. His name was Kuang Ni, and get a load of this. This guy, I, I would love to see a documentary on this guy's life. But it says. According to my sources, he worked for the Chinese government for a while, but he was an, a firm anti-communist. Hmm. He wrote a lot of wuxia or martial arts films. He was a sci-fi novelist, and he wrote political essays. Hmm. He has 400 scripts and 300 novels to wow. his name. I'm like, I feel pretty how do you write now. that many books? Uh, I only have like 40 or 50 books. Yeah. This guy has 300 novels and 400 movie scripts. He could write 4,500 characters an hour. Wow. And he was sometimes an actor in in these movies. He's made some cameo appearances, I guess, in some of them. Interestingly, he moved to America in 1992 when China was a few years away from taking over Hong Kong. That was in 1997. But then he moved back in 2006. I'm sure with some of the unhappy things that have been happening in Hong Kong recently, I'd be curious to hear what his opinions are. Yeah. But that's that's just nutty for me to think about. Just absolutely nutty. And then, do, do you know anything about the composer? Although, no. I should say, air quotes, you know, air quotes up to the mic like Luke Giaconetti, composer for this movie? Mm-mm. His name is Frankie Chen, but... According to Mr. Crawford, to call him the composer for this movie would be a little bit of a stretch. Although I'm looking at here, there's also... Oh, it also credits DeWolf Music. That's what I was trying to think of. You know, DeWolf Music, which is a music library. It's a British music library. Because he said it would be more accurate to call Frankie Chen the music supervisor because he just used mostly music libraries to get the stuff. Hmm. So there you go. And then, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Miss Craft. The other big star in this movie is Danny Lee. You know anything about Danny Lee? Oh, uh, wasn't he like a Bruce Lee? They were hoping he could be like another Bruce Lee or something. Yep. Yep. He even made a Bruce Bloitation movie called Bruce Lee and I. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was about a year or so before this. But and he's done a lot of things. He started his own production companies. He did other movies with this director, like the Oily Maniac. <laughs> oh god, <laughs> which sounds like a swamp monster sort of a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and he eventually went on to become a director and a producer on a lot of different things. But he has another really famous role that we've mentioned in brief here already, and I've already covered on the podcast. Whoa, Inframan. Yep, he was the star of Inframan. Right. He was Inframan. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's cool. He did both of the Shaw Brothers' big monster movies. Yeah, Tokusatsu movies. Yep, he was in both of them. 
And I think I read in one of my sources that he actually he actually said that Inframan was easier to make. Hmm. <laughs> so this was this was a little grueling for him apparently. But what do you think of him as a leading man in this? Because I've heard what I read is that they they said he was much more a quote unquote leading man than he was a character actor. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I I definitely say he's leading man material. Yeah. Well, what'd you think of him in this movie? Oh, in this particular movie, uh, I thought he did well. You know, like I said, it's but well, you know, I've only seen it dubbed. You know, I've never seen the original oh, Chinese yeah. language, so it's harder to say when they're dubbed. This is true. I thought I, I thought you know he was all right for the role that he was given. Nothing really stands out about him, other than the fact that I'm like that's him for man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. He, he was supposed to be Bruce Lee. He never really became that. But I dare anyone to try to become Bruce Lee. Yeah. <laughs> Although Bruce Blatation was kind of an icky thing that was going on, especially in the 70s after the death uh-huh. of Bruce Lee. It was kind of gross. Kind of gross. Man, the the time difference is really messing with you. You keep yawning. <laughs> you can tell I'm yawning? I thought I was yes. being silent. Nope. <laughs> How can you tell I'm yawning? Because <laughs> it's coming over. It's coming through on the call, man. <laughs> oh, funny. Um, but then you had Ku Fang, kind of the opposite of this. He was a character actor. He was in 400 movies. He was the slimy bad guy in this. Yeah, I, do, I don't remember the bad guy at all. I just remember Samantha and Johnny, and that's it. Yeah. Well, this like I said, this guy was a slime ball throughout the whole thing. <laughs> but this guy said that. He worked with the director, Director Ho, on a lot of different movies, and he said he was always a gentleman. He was always smiling, hmm. which is funny because when you look at the guy's filmography, there's some pretty effed up stuff in it. Hmm. He did all kinds of things. He considered himself a commercial filmmaker. He would pay attention to what the market wanted and then give the market what it wanted. Pretty simple for him, he said. But he did a lot of stuff. He did, obviously, Mighty Peking Man. He did horror movies. He did martial arts films. He also did some erotic films, I guess would be the polite way to put it. (laughs) (laughs) The polite way. Yeah, well, I found out that Hong Kong actually had its own movie rating system for a while. And they had what were called Category 3. Like, what the heck is Category 3? And he said that was basically the equivalent of an NC-17 or an X rating. Hmm. Now, but they said that went away once Hong Kong was given back to China. They didn't do that anymore. And the the Chinese censors have really cracked down on that sort of stuff. So they said that, yeah, like in the 90s leading up to when they took over, it's like you saw a a huge increase in these sorts of movies because they're like, we're going to make them now because we can't make them later. Hmm. So he made some of those, too. (laughs) He had movies like you. One of them you mentioned in your book. It was the flying Gil, uh, the flying guillotine, mm-hmm. which they didn't explain what the movie was. The only reason I even know what it's about is because of your books. Yeah, me too. I I don't know what it's about either. I assume it's about a flying guillotine, but who knows? No, you said in your book that it's about a guy with a razor tipped hat who could chop people's heads oh, off. Okay. <laughs> yeah. After I've written a book, if it's been like a year, it's gone. All, it's all the gone. info is gone. Yeah, and then the other movie that he's apparently well known for is called Black Magic. I guess that was a it was a bit of a trend in the seventies in Hong Kong was movies about black magic. Anyway, do you do you have any favorite sequences in this film? 
I, you know, I like all of it as a whole, pretty much. There's no sections of the movie that I remember being a chore to get through. Yeah, I just really like that end uh, destruction montage in Hong Kong. I thought it was pretty well done. I like all the scenes in the jungle, you know, it just looks mm-hmm. like a nice, nice uh, life out there, you know? Mm-hmm. What do you think about how the film handles the animals in it? That's a little bit of a point of contention for some people. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they basically, for anyone that doesn't know the production history, it's the leopard. They they sewed the leopard's mouth shut so it couldn't bite anybody, supposedly. Or that might have been No, it was the leopard. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Most of the so sources I looked at said that that was a thing that happened, which is funny because one of the most iconic images of the movie is... Samantha with the leopard on her shoulders spinning around yeah. in slow motion. Yeah, and you wonder why it never opens its mouth and the scenes with her, and that's why. That just sounds so cruel. I hope they yeah. cut the stitches or whatever so that it could open its mouth later. Yeah, and, and it like hopefully an- anesthetize the, the jaws or something too so it didn't feel them. But well, yeah. I would think they'd have to, though. It would have to be out under surgery or something because otherwise they wouldn't even be able to probably do that i don't know yeah and the story that you had in your book about the tiger i thought was actually pretty funny yeah a lot of the movie revolved around getting shots of the tiger i think and then mm-hmm. like in terms of their on location shooting in india it was really difficult mm-hmm. yeah and you read you wrote in your book that they tried using a tiger from a zoo but it didn't know what to do when it was outside of its cage so they just got a few close-up shots of it in its cage and then they had a specially trained tiger and they had to file off its teeth and claws so it wouldn't hurt anybody. That Yeah, that's where I was getting confused because I think I was thinking, now did they file the leopard's teeth or did they show the mouth, sew the mouth shut? I think that's where I was getting confused. No, they sewed the, the leopard's mouth shut, but they filed, uh, they filed the teeth for uh, the teeth and claws for the tiger okay. which apparently upset miss craft so much she cried she's an animal oh lover. yeah i remember that. she was yeah. she raised horses and had dogs back in switzerland so i'm guessing that the affection she's showing the animals and this is probably very genuine yeah because <laughs> she really does love those animals <laughs> uh, yeah I and mean, then you had the elephant stampede earlier on in the movie which as the as the commentary pointed out, has actors in brown face, and I'm like, they were going through auth- for authenticity, didn't have enough extras, man. It's not meant to be racist. <laughs> and now I'm th- I'm I'm thinking about that cobra bite. That now that's kind of an exploitation okay. scene. Okay, yeah, the cobra bite, which Mr. Crawford said was unsubtly sexually symbolic, and I'm like, yeah, I could kind of see that too. That might have been the most exploitative part of it. Because I understand why it's happening. He's supposed to be sucking the poison out, which I think is actually something that has been disproven since then. People say, like, no, that doesn't really work. <laughs> but yeah, it's on her thigh. Yeah, upper, really upper thigh. Clo- really close to... Really close to... Her waist, the, we'll where, say. Yeah. <laughs> where the sun doesn't shine. Yeah. And then they throw the snake to the tiger, and it's pretty obvious that's a real snake and a real tiger. I feel sorry for the tiger. I don't feel sorry for the snake. <laughs> the tiger, I might feel sorry for if it got bit, but the snake, I don't. I don't. I don't like yeah, that's that's just a big no no. You know, most especially in America, they don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> they do 
<laughs> this movie definitely could not have the credit about how no animals were harmed in the making of this motion no. picture. <laughs> That's what they did. But they had, they filmed in India because they needed the jungle scene and because they wanted access to the animals, which is just one of the things that makes this movie look pretty big budget, but it also increased the budget. I couldn't find anybody who could agree on how much this movie cost to make. I saw most sources I had said $6 million, but I saw as high as eight. Hmm. So there's that, but here's something I've been talking about a lot of the actors and the, you know, and the production and all of that. We haven't really talked a whole lot about the story, which is where I, most of my issues come in. I don't mind the actors. I don't mind the direction. I don't mind the effects. The script is where I think it gets a little bit dicey for me because I do think it's a little melodramatic at points, but it didn't really bother. That didn't really bother me, but it's more like there are these plot threads that they don't do enough with like the whole subplot with Johnny and his ex-girlfriend. Oh yeah. I do remember that now that, yeah, that might be the one part of the movie that is kind of a chore to get through that feels almost kind of like unnecessary where it's like, Oh, why is this in here? Yeah, because the whole thing in the fastest exposition ever, because like all the exposition gets done in about 60 seconds <laughs> at the beginning of the movie, which is, hey, go find this guy, Johnny. We need him to go find the big ape. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, uh, what? Well, what about what do you know about us? Well, his girl just dumped him. And then they find him at a bar, you know, half drunk. He's drinking himself to death. He's like, Cheryl, I'll go find the big box for you. <laughs> yeah. And so that's it. So that's just to set up that why he would just go gaga for more than the obvious reasons over Samantha. <laughs> yeah. And then like, okay, fine. And then they bother, but then they bother to have a flashback where he catches his girlfriend who's a career woman who wants to be a singer. And part of it is just like, well, you probably should have saw that coming, dude. Although yeah. initially I just thought, oh, it, she said, I'm more interested in pursuing my career than being in a relationship with you. No, he literally catches his own brother in bed with her. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then that comes back later in the movie that only causes some drama for about two minutes because he meet, she meets up with him at a TV studio and she says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I broke up with your brother. I want to get back together with you. And then, like I said, it's awkward for about two minutes, and then the rest of the movie happens, and they completely drop it. But I was yeah. sitting there thinking, it's like, how do you explain to your Chinese ex-girlfriend that you're in love with a hot, blonde, white woman? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean... That you met in the jungle. That you met in the jungle, was raised by a giant ape. I mean, there's no easy way to have that conversation. I don't believe you, Jimmy. I don't believe that that happened to you once. Just, I'm calling BS on that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. But that frustrated me a little bit because like there was some potential there and you didn't really do anything with it. So then I'm like, why even bother? Yeah. Why even bother? Let's be honest, though, John. I don't know. His ex-girlfriend is pretty and all, but I don't think she stood a chance. Oh, yeah, against Samantha. I thought we were talking about Jimmy for a second, but yeah, no. Samantha and Johnny. No, yeah. she didn't She didn't stand a chance. I mean, <laughs> I think Johnny has basically made up his mind. 
I mean, there's a potential feminist commentary waiting to happen there. I just guarantee yeah. you, some some feminist has watched this movie and wrote an entire essay about that part, <laughs> about how the the career woman, you know, doing her thing, because, you know, because she does what she wants, and then she ends up getting turned down for the more for the hot submissive woman. <laughs> <laughs> who's also yeah. kind of exotic. I guarantee you yeah. there's an angry <laughs> feminist somewhere who wrote that essay. Yeah. No, Jimmy, I'm not cutting back on the hot takes. <laughs> Welcome to the Monster Island Phone Vault season four, baby. <laughs> Got John on the phone. Have you heard some of John's hot takes? <laughs> you had one this episode about Super Inframan. I just... <laughs> What was my hot take about, oh, Super Inframan, that it was terrible? This is better than Super Inframan. Yeah, I think, oh, I absolutely think this is better than Super Inframan. I don't know. I kind of, I think I still prefer the absolute insanity of Super Inframan. The the, the script is nonsense, but. Yeah. (laughs) I never understood why Roger Ebert liked it so much. I read his review, but I forget exactly why. Although, since you're bringing up Ebert, I read his review of. Mighty Peking Man, and I did have a couple of quick excerpts I was going to share from that. He actually said this was his favorite Hong Kong monster movie. Keep in mind, this was written in 1999, and I'm thinking, how many of those are there? Yeah, I don't <laughs> think there's very many. He's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And then here's how he closed out his review of the movie. He said, I'll bet a month hasn't gone by since that. I haven't thought of that film. I am awarding Mighty Peking Man three stars for general goofiness and a certain level of insane genius. That could describe a lot of things that I've covered on this show, but I cannot in good conscience rate it higher than Inframan. So in answer to those correspondents who ask if I have ever changed a rating on a movie, yes, Inframan moves up to three stars. Hmm. So it was this movie that made him rate <laughs> Super Inframan higher. Yeah. One of the rare times he's changed a rating. Go figure, right? <laughs> well, I, as usual, I have more notes than we need, so I think I'm just going to mention a few more quick things. I think we can move on to the next segment, John. And so, if anything comes to your mind about the movie before we finish, let me know. Sounds but good. The Connaught Center, which has since been renamed the I, I hope I'm I don't know if I'm saying this right, but the Jardine or Hardine House. This is where the climax of the movie takes place. It was the tallest building in Hong Kong at the time. Again, going back to King Kong, because the Empire State Building was the tallest building in New York. Actually, the tallest building in the world at that point. And this was built in 1972. And according to Mr. Abrams in the Arrow Video booklet, it's very well known for its quote-unquote distinctive round portal windows. Did you notice that in the movie, that all the windows were round? I may have. Yeah. Well, that earned it a funny nickname. I think this is podcast safe, Jimmy, but, (laughs) you know, have the dump button ready, I guess. Eh. Oh, you did have Jet record a few lines just in case you needed to. Good to know. But it was nicknamed the House of a Thousand Arseholes. Oh, Hmm. (laughs) that's nice. That must have been back when the Brits were still in charge because that's like a very British way of putting it. Yes. And of course, Arrow Video would know that because they're a British company. (laughs) 
Let me see. Going over my notes here. Actually, we've covered basically all the stuff I had highlighted. Dang, John. <laughs> oh, good. You got anything? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I mean, given that a lot of what I have on here is from your books, <laughs> but then again, <laughs> you just said if it's been a more than a year, you forget everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Brain can only hold so much, right? <laughs> Yeah, basically. All right. Well, with that, I think we can move into our two Toku topics right now. After this word from one of our fellow podcasters. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. All right, John, as the guest, I'll... Have you decide which of our two Toku topics we'll go over first? So, what would you rather talk about first, Kongsploitation or the Peking Man fossil? Let's do Kongsploitation because I you're going to enlighten me on the Peking Man fossil. I know nothing about it other than that that it exists, and that's it. Other than it exists, okay. So, I found a couple of articles about this. I'm surprised there isn't more, but the best quote unquote definition I could find. If I could find one at all <laughs> for Kongsploitation was quote a subgenre of a subgenre since man in a gorilla suit is a subgenre all of its own. But this moniker specifically refers to giant ape movies that are trying to steal the iconography of King Kong. End quote. What would you say to that? Well, I'm actually fascinated by how many movies do ape King Kong that don't even sometimes have a giant gorilla. Thank you. <laughs> but like I was watching Dinosaurus for the first time in years with the, the caveman that gets mm -hmm. thought out. And it's like the caveman takes a girl back to his cave and is kind of like playing with her necklace, which is just like King Kong. Mm -hmm. So even movies without an ape will sometimes kind of copy King Kong. You know what was a movie that I saw in the last couple of years where I thought this is just the story of King Kong? but in a completely different setting and with completely different creatures. Valley of Guanji. Oh, not surprised. Cause I mean, that's Willis O'Brien wrote it, even though, you know, he, he passed on by the time it was filmed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then Harryhausen finished it, but yeah. stop and it's, think yeah. about it. What it, it's cowboys who go to a Valley, find a dinosaur and then bring the dinosaur back the, uh, to exploit it. The dinosaur gets loose rampages and then ends up getting killed at the end yeah all so, they're doing is swapping a skull island for mexico because that's where it takes place and swapping a 
the dinosaur for King Kong. So I'll like shamelessly give you a preview of my next book, which is Lost Films of the Lost World, which is like unmade dinosaur movies. And Obi wrote uh, a script in the 1950s called The Last of the Oso Sipapu, mm-hmm. which was about like a Native American monster emerging from the earth. But that also totally copies King Kong because it's like instead of the Skull Islanders, he, he has a Pueblo kind of associated with the monster and the Pueblo is up on a mesa which isn't mm-hmm. exactly like the Skull Island wall but it's like they're on a mesa and they're pounding these drums as the monster approaches Jeez. then later there's a scene with a Carl Denham type movie man filming this monster and then like there's a scene where they get in these cable cars that, that go across like a canyon or like a big chasm and the monster like shakes them and the men fall out of the cable cars. And I was like, that's just the Skull Island log scene. So, I mean, Obi, like he loved to copy King Kong. And so did like, as we all know, a bunch of other filmmakers. Yes, which we'll get into a little bit here, which I, I'm just going to say it right now. That's something that I've seen some debate over as to why King Kong never became a franchise in the traditional sense. King Kong would have movies that get made usually in pairs with the exception of the 2005 remake and soon the MonsterVerse because we have another MonsterVerse sequel coming that is going to have Kong in it. So it's just kind of weird. So you have Godzilla that became a franchise, Gamera that became a franchise. Kong is, it's not, if it's a franchise, it's not a traditional franchise for sure. And I would attribute that honestly to the fact that that first movie is about as close to perfection as you can get. There are precious few perfect slash almost perfect movies in the world. And King Kong 33 is on that list. So good luck trying to follow that up. But all that to say, there have been King Kong imitators basically since the beginning. And that's what we're going to be going over here. This will not be an exhaustive list because there's a lot of them. But I'm going to highlight some of the more interesting ones. This is actually a little bit of a, well, not really a preview. It's because it's not Kong on Made like I'm going to do with my friend Chris Cook on One Cross Radio. Those are specifically King Kong related, but these are imitators. Although this, these first two I am going to bring up, and I have you to thank for making me aware of this, John, but was, uh, was say King Kong and King Kong appears in Edo, the two lost Japanese films. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, there's just stills of them and, uh, promotional materials but did you did you want me to kind of say what they are oh yeah sure go for it yeah so wase kingu kongu was a short film produced by shochiku who was the king kong's distributor in japan and it's basically just a comedic short film i think it was like less than 10 minutes long Mm -hmm. Uh, it says three reels three three reels well maybe it was longer than that then but i think more like 30 minutes okay See, I don't remember what's in my books, but whatever is in my book is probably right. Don't trust what I'm saying. (laughs) It wasn't even about King Kong, though. It was about it. Yeah. So it's about a stage performer playing King Kong in a live Mm -hmm. stage show. Yeah. And just so everyone knows, Wase King Kongu means Japanese King Kong. Yeah. And then King Kong and Hito. Yeah. Well, and I should say, Wase King Kongu came out in 33, same year as the original King Kong. And then King Kong appears in Edo. Is it Edo or Edo? I've never heard it pronounced. I've heard, uh, I think I usually hear it as Edo. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've been 1938, so five years later. Yeah, that one has a, 
I believe just a human-sized ape named King Kong that's the pet of the villain. So it's mm-hmm. kind of a, I think, a little bit of a samurai movie or something where the ape kidnaps yeah, a girl. and some people Who's the daughter that, of a samurai. Yeah. And some people have claimed that the ape grows to gigantic proportions, but it's kind of hard to say whether yeah, that happens or not. That just has a promotional image that survived. Yeah. If I remember correctly, and I think that's why some people think it's kaiju because the promotional image makes the ape look really big. Yeah, probably so. Yeah, and according to this article that I looked at, it said it was actually supposed to be shown in two parts. Yeah, that's what I remember too. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he, in this uh, source I looked at, said that he assumes it was released to capitalize on the 1938 reissue of King Kong in Japan. Yeah, that's right. King Kong had a lot of reissues, so that that's yep, probably uh, about a half dozen, I think, all the way up to 2020. Wow, it was the last movie that got shown here at the Denim Theater before lockdown happened. Wow, so that was the last movie I saw in the theater for several months. <laughs> <laughs> there are worse things, <laughs> but yeah, it's a silent period drama. That's. It's too bad that it doesn't exist, but something that everyone should know is that most pre-war movies in Japan have not survived. Mm-hmm. There are very few because they because they were destroyed in the war. So there's precious few. So it's all so that puts it in the both of these films in the same boat as like the original Great Buddha Arrival because that was lost as well. Yeah, and that too kind of was in, some people think was inspired by King Kong more just in terms of the special effects scenes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the next one that I'll highlight here really quick is Unknown Island from 1948. What do you remember about this one? I remember it has a giant ground sloth that looks, yep. I think on purpose, like a big gorilla that's kind of is that film's King Kong mm-hmm. and it fights a T-Rex, you know, long before King Kong and Godzilla ever tussled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is this one's also noteworthy because some of this footage was in Godzilla Raids again. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. I, I always enjoyed seeing that footage. Yeah, yeah. And the one of my sources noted that there's a monster graveyard in this that predates Kong Skull Island. Yeah, I, I tend to think Unknown Island's a pretty cool little movie. I, I've only seen it once, but I remember I enjoyed it. It wasn't like a chore to watch or anything. Which actually reminds me of something that I should have mentioned from when we were talking about Mighty Peking Man. We have a scene where Utam is sitting on the boat, not in the boat like in Kong 76. He's sitting on the boat and he's yeah. chained up. And I'm thinking, oh, GVK totally stole this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then I'm not going to go into it too much because I have an entire episode dedicated to this movie. But I don't think I would classify it as Kong exploitation. Mighty Joe Young. Yeah, my I always think of Mighty Joe Young. The main reason I don't think of it as Kong exploitation is because it was made by the same team. So you know they have a right to copy themselves, so to speak, if they want. Mm-hmm. And I I tend to think of it as the road not taken with King Kong, which is what if his stage show was a success, and what if the girl loved King Kong back and they had mm-hmm. like a good relationship. So that's how I look at it: is the road not taken with Kong. Right. I look at it as a spiritual sequel, hmm. which yeah, kind of makes point. a trilogy because you have Kong, Son of Kong, and then I Mighty agree. Joe Young. So I, that's how I think of it. If you want to hear more about, like I said, this movie, check out MIFE episode 58. I had 
the the my original troop of tourists come on to talk about that. We had a good time. Everyone freaked out over the ending. <laughs> they weren't prepared for the ending. And then there's another one. I'm a little bit more inclined to include this as a Kongsploitation because there's a lot of similarities. And I've also had an entire episode dedicated to this half human. Yeah, I agree. Last time I watched that, I saw a lot of the King Kong similarities mm-hmm. with just yeah. with the natives and the the way he uh, absconds with the girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you want to hear more about that movie and all of its controversies, because <laughs> it's technically a banned movie yeah. that had to be stashed all the way into the deepest, darkest back corners of the film vault on the island, go listen to MIFE episode seven. And then this one, the next, this next one, I definitely agree. It qualifies. I'm not going to get into it too much here because that's going to be covered on the show later this season because we got to go wrangle him too. Conga, 1961. It's a British film. Yeah. yeah I, the, what I remember on that one is they paid like a $25,000. They didn't really consider a licensing fee. I think they called it pub- a publicity fee or something mm-hmm. for, to exploit the Kong name. And so, so basically they were ensuring that they wouldn't get sued by the owners of Kong. Which that's already a convoluted mess to begin yes. with. <laughs> we talked about that when you came on for King Kong Lives. Yeah. <laughs> How convoluted a mess that is. Uh, so much drama with that. And then did you know that there's a 1962 Hindi film called King Kong? Uh, I don't. I must have missed that one. Yeah, but here's the problem. It has exactly zero monsters in it. Oh, okay. I, I know it's Shikari. A, Shikari from 63. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is a swashbuckling adventure movie that has a character, a champion wrestler named King Kong. Not King Kong Bundy of WWE fame. Apparently, you can watch some of it on YouTube, but that's about it. So that one just exploits the name. (laughs) Kind of like this next one, Tarzan and King Kong from 1965. There's apparently a 2016 British novel that had a, cro- a a crossover between these two, but this is another Indian film. Yeah, 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 totally unlicensed. And what's ironic is so Tarzan does fight a guy in a gorilla suit, but the gorilla isn't named King Kong. It's like another wrestler character in the movie is named King Kong. Mhm. It's weird. And then this next one I have, it's called The Founding of the Ming Dynasty, 1971. Have you heard of this one? Ooh, I think I've heard of it, but yeah. It's a Taiwanese film, and it briefly has a scene where a giant white monkey fights an ogre. Hmm. And this article I looked at noted that this actually beats Rampage to a part where a giant simian teams up with a human protagonist. Hmm. And Koichi Takano, who was a Subaraya Productions technician, worked on the movie. Cool. I really want to see somebody do just a guide and review book. Not me, but somebody <laughs> on all of the like Chinese, Taiwan, Thailand, just their kaiju movies, you know? Yeah, there really should be something like that. But that's something that we're going to be doing at least a, a bit this season on the Film Vault because we're going to South Korea and... We got some Thai films. Well, this is one that this is probably this has to be. I think at this point has to be one of the most uh, famous of the Kong exploitation movies, and it's very much a Kong exploitation movie. Ape 
1976, oh, yeah. the South it Korean movie. Beat, yeah, it beat 76 Kong to theaters, I think. Mm-hmm. They threw it together that fast. It's yeah. incredibly, It's incredibly infamous. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I was so excited to see it just based on this idea of a giant ape like King Kong fighting a shark like Jaws, and then you see it in the first five minutes, and it's just literally nothing. Yeah, it's it's an insane movie. Absolutely insane, and I'm sure somebody's going to make me cover it on the podcast. That's it's not as fun to watch as Mighty Picking Man. It's, it, it doesn't have a soul to me like Picking Man has a soul. You know, that's funny because I think I saw who was it? One of my sources did compare Mighty Peking Man to Ape. I think he thought more favorably of Ape or something. Like, I think he said that well, Mighty Peking Man was a better made movie, but I think he said Ape was more entertaining or something. I forget what he said. Hmm. Something I say some how weird. Yeah, it's some weird comparison, but it dazzled audiences with. A, this is what my source says, with a giant ape's tongue-in-cheek rampage through Seoul in 3D. Right. And then I remember someone, one of my friends, I think it was my friend Danny DeMana made me aware of this movie, but I have zero interest in ever seeing it. Zero. Bye Bye Monkey, 1978. Oh, yeah. You know I'll this confess, one? I, I didn't watch that one for my review. I mean, I might have watched snippets of it, but like I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Apparently, it's incredibly dour and very difficult to get through. It's supposed to be, I think it's supposed to be set, it says it's set in New York after King Kong. I'm assuming it, you, they mean 76. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird because I think it's not clear if it's literally King Kong that's dead or he finds the King Kong movie prop on the beach and that's Yeah, it. because it's supposed to be a corpse on the, yeah. uh, on the beach. Yeah. Yeah, Small and he finds like a ape. baby. Yeah, small yeah. baby ape. And the baby ape gets eaten by rats or something. Yeah, and then apparently it just gets very uncomfortable and nasty after that with all kinds of things that we can't talk about on this podcast. Yeah, I just had no interest in actually watching it. Yeah. But according to the source, according to my source, it said, quote, this is for all intents and purposes an art house movie as it won the grand prize at the jury at Cannes. Oh my gosh. It's like, who and, are these people? Yeah, well, if people are losing faith in the so-called highfalutin movie things yeah. anymore. Yeah. And then I'll briefly highlight this one. King of the Lost World, 2005. It's the Asylum's mockbuster of Peter Jackson's King Kong. You want to know more about that debacle? Listen to MIFE. It's actually about Monster Island, the movie, but we get into the shenanigans that the asylum gets into, and this was one of them. <laughs> they yeah, got that was sued. another one that was they got sued to, like, over watch. this one. Yeah. <laughs> then 2006, The Abominable. Heard of that one? Is that Ice Kong or is that a different one? I don't know, but this article was from a couple years ago, so maybe things have changed, but it's actually an American movie directed by a guy named Patrick G. Donahue. But it's only available in Japan. Uh, yeah, I think that's Ice Kong, and I did. Is it Ice Kong? Friends, yeah. Well, it's it's an alternate title, but yeah, I think Abominable is correct too. But yeah, I I watched that. It the way I looked at that one is if they actually had the right special effects and everything, it wouldn't have been too bad. That's funny because that means it took. I'm doing the math here. <laughs> when did you see it last year? Yeah, last year. So it took them 14 years. No, 16 years. To get it out 
outside of Japan because that was 2006. Well, it's just like an internet bootleg thing. You know what I mean? So, oh, okay. DVD, yeah. Okay. And then just to rattle off a few other titles you know, that people would be familiar with, especially if they read your books, John, you have King of Kong Island 1968, which... Yeah, that one's more of a title, yeah. Yeah, that one's really misleading. Yeah, they're all yeah. human-sized gorillas. Yeah, and it's more it's it's kind of a Samantha situation because there's I think her name is Ava or something like that because I think the title the original title is Ava. It's, it's this it's a jungle girl, yeah, but right. she's barely yeah. in it. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> and then oh, I know you love this one. Wink, wink. The Mighty Gorga. Oh yeah, nineteen sixty nine. You were not nice to that one in your book. <laughs> I feel kind of bad about it because, like, I do feel bad when people make movies on shoestring budgets and everything. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Now this one, I'm a little curious to see if for no other reason than the title, but King Kung Fu 1976 sounds like one of the yeah. most 70s things ever. Yeah, that one. It wasn't too hard to suffer through that one. It was. It still wasn't a pleasure. But I think one of the only ones that surprised me that I enjoyed watching was Trog. Trog was decent. Yeah, that wasn't one of the other titles I had on here. Then there's Queen Kong, which I honestly don't really want to watch. Yeah, that one was kind of tough to get through. Not that, you know, that's the sort of thing where it should have just been a Saturday night live skit and that's it. Like five minutes and done. Yeah, it sounds like an overlong but bad Monty Python sketch. Yeah. Which is too bad because I do think it had potential. If you know anything about this, basically it's it's a British film. It's a parody. I think it's also a musical. Is it a musical? Kind of. Seems like there's some musical numbers. Yeah. And it's gender swapped, which actually sounds kind of interesting. So the gorilla's female and the Andero is this big, burly, handsome guy who's kind of a yeah, dork. His, his name is Ray Fay. Ray Fay. Which, okay. That's funny. That actually sounds like there's a potential there, but it's completely botched. Well, see, that's that's just it. You heard the joke right there, and it's done. Yeah. That's it. That's all you get out of it, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah. yes. <laughs> Fine, Jimmy, I'll spit it out. Yeti Giant of the 20th Century, 1977. Go listen to MIFV episode 55. Yeah. I endorse that one other other than like the nipple scene and the, the weird thing with the toes breaking somebody's neck. But otherwise, I consider it to be a decent movie. Uh, with Yeti Jesus. Yeti Christ. <laughs> I can't get over that. I also can't get over just what happened when we were forced to cover that movie. <laughs> show got hijacked by our frenemy over on the island now. Yeah, that was interesting to say the least. <laughs> Uh, yes, and you got karate chopped in the back of the neck. Okay, we get it. Ugh. All right. And I then feel like I miss all the good stuff. I feel yeah, like apparently you I'm do. On, it's really I'll send you I'll send you a list of episodes to listen to. <laughs> and then 1984, this exists. King Dong. I'm sorry I had to say that. <laughs> it feels so I bad. Yeah, that I, I didn't I didn't that. review that one. All you need to know is that it's a porn parody. That's it. And apparently the gorilla is a woman hmm. i guess i'll take that article's word for it because i have zero interest for seeing it and then there is the banglar king kong from 2010 which is the bollywood musical Poof, that was i i did not watch all like three hours of that life is too short i yeah. just kind of watched the special effect scenes and that's all i needed yep 
And to give you some of the most recent examples, actually, I think I found one. Someone sent it to Monster Island to add to the film vault. I can't even remember what it was called, but it was clearly a knockoff gorilla like horror movie. I sent you a picture of it, and you're like, why do they keep making more? <laughs> I don't even remember what it was called. But the Asylum is still up to their old tricks. They made a mockbuster of GVK, Ape versus Monster. That one, yeah, had some ties to where I live because they, they have the craft like crashed down in Chavez County, which is where I live in Roswell. Mm. Well, are you ready for this? Is it Ape versus Mecha Ape or something? Yep, they're making a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> exploitation continues. They're making a sequel. <laughs> yes, we know you're upset because you think they stole your Mechanicong plans. Take it up with Captain Gordon when we get back to the island, okay? Jeez. You have a point. Michael might have sold those plans. Hmm. Michael, we need to talk. Anyway, so that's all I have on Kongsploitation. Just, you know, a handful of titles and examples. You got anything to add to that? No. Just the other the other one I would suggest checking out is 1970s Bigfoot movie. Because that's actually... You wouldn't think, but it, it has a lot that it cherry picks from King Kong, and it really surprised me. Mm. All right. Well, let's move on to the Peking Man fossil, which, according to you, no other source I looked at brought this up, but according to you, was an inspiration for the movie. So <laughs> I don't know where you found that, but you might you, you might have an exclusive there. <laughs> you, you know I wouldn't know, so <laughs> I wouldn't know where I found it. Not at this point. Yep. But this was actually a fossil. It's sometimes called Beijing Man. And it's an example of what's called Homo erectus, which is an extinct species of the genus to which modern humans also belong. It was originally called Synapthropus pekensis. Pekensis? Yeah, I think, I hope I said that right, which some people might consider this to be a bit of a dicey name, but it, was, it that means China Man from Peking. Hmm. And it was these remains were discovered between 1921 and 1927 during excavations at, I'm going to do my best to say this, Zokudi, Zokudian or Chokutian near Beijing, which used to be called Peking in China. And they have been dated to be as old, to be between 250 and 400,000 years old. And the place where it was found was a low hill called Dragon Bone Mountain, which just sounds mm, cool. That's an awesome name. <laughs> yep, 42 kilometers southwest of Beijing. And this place where it was found was declared an important national cultural protected unit in 1961 by UNESCO. Oh, and I should say, and named the UNESCO World Cultural Heritage Site in 1987. So the Peking Man is a collection of six complete or nearly complete skulls. 14 cranial fragments, 6 facial fragments, 15 jaw bones, 157 teeth, 1 collarbone, 3 upper arms, 1 wrist, and 7 thigh bones, and 1 shin bone. They're all found in a cave in a quarry. And it's believed to be 40 individuals of both sexes. Hmm. Yeah, the only thing I remember about Peking Man, I think, is like they decided to choose it as a way of kind of differentiating themselves from King Kong in case there was a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I mean, it's like a Chinese treasure too. So you know, yep. it's just kind of like national pride. So 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I'll get into a little bit here. It was taken to the Peking Union Medical College in 1926. It was actually, according to this source, it was originally thought that they were 200,000 to 300,000 years old. Now they think it's 400 to 780,000. So this is a different source that I, from the other one I was looking at. This is based on dating the sediments in which the fossils were found. They didn't do any chemical tests on this, on these things, until, here's where it gets interesting. We'll get into that a little bit more in a second. When these remains mysteriously disappeared during World War II. Mm. Oh yeah, that this is, is the part where that's where I said this is where it gets way more interesting than I was expecting. Someone needs to make a movie about this. <laughs> yeah. So, the Peking Man bones were hidden after the Japanese invaded China in 1937, and then they disappeared in 1941 because Chinese and American scientists tried to ship them to the United States for safekeeping. Obviously. Hmm. So here's a rundown for you. Quote, before they disappeared, the fossils had been packed in crates at the Peking Union Medical College, an American Baptist teaching hospital, where research on the fossils was conducted by the Rockefeller Foundation. Oh, boy. (laughs) The plan was for the crates to be transferred by the Marine Corps to the port at Qinghongdao. I hope I said that right. Where they were to be loaded onto a ship called the President Harrison for the journey to America. The ship was scheduled to leave on December 8th, 1941. But the day before it was to leave, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and the Marines in charge of watching over the two crates with the bones were taken prisoner by the Japanese. End quote. Hmm. And then the Japanese did the special effects for the movie. (laughs) Go figure, right? (laughs) What exactly happened to him? No one really knows. The Chinese blamed the Americans, but the Americans blamed the Japanese. (laughs) And a Chinese professor told the New York Times, quote, I think the Japanese opened the boxes thinking they would find weapons or food. And when they saw that it was only bones, I think they kicked it over and threw them away. Hmm. So all that they have from those initial findings is they made casts of the bones. But here's where it gets weird, and this is the part that I think needs to be a movie, especially this part. And you want to talk about King Kong connections, I'm about to give you one. Mm. (laughs) I'm just going to read this verbatim. So, quote, according to one military report, the crates with the Peking man bones were delivered to a Swiss warehouse. So there's a connection to this movie because Switzerland, Miss Craft, for shipment but there is no evidence that the crates ever arrived at the warehouse. In the 1970s, a woman appeared who claimed to be the widow of one of the Marines in charge of guarding the fossils. She met a Chicago businessman who was offering a reward on information on the bones. Here's your King Kong connection. At the top of the Empire State Building. What? Yep. Showed him some pictures, which she said were of a box with the missing fossils and then disappeared and was never heard from again. Wow. Most think she was part of a hoax. End quote. (laughs) There's all kinds of intrigue there. All kinds of it. Did you ever know any of that? I knew none of that. So that's fascinating. (laughs) Yes, it is. Now, 
In 2005, the Chinese government said that they were going to do an all-out search to find the Peking man bones and ask the governments in in Japan, South Korea, and the United States to help. And then a bunch of scientists, philanthropists, farmers, and con men, that's what the article says, con men, all announced that they were starting searches or made discoveries. Because of course they would. (laughs) I love how it says scientists, philanthropists, farmers, and con men. (laughs) Yeah. It just cracks me up. But we may have figured out what happened. The mystery may have been solved. Like how recently was this? 2010. April 2010. A man named Paul Bowen, who is the son of a former U.S. Marine, Richard Bowen, he emailed a paleoanthropologist named Lee Berger of the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. He said that his father dug up a box of bones while stationed in the port city of, again, I'm probably going to butcher this name, Qinhuangdao, formerly Qinghuangtao, I think we mentioned that before, in 1947, so after the war, during China's National Communist Civil War. So Berger went to the site that this, guy des- that he, that this guy's father described, and there's a parking lot there now. Hmm. So if the bones are buried there, they would have to excavate it from under the parking lot. Interesting. Yep. But here's the really wacky thing. The Peking man has been used by Chinese nationalists. Hmm. Quote, Peking man was claimed as the direct ancestor of the modern Chinese, allowing patriotic Chinese archaeologist Lin Yan to claim that the Chinese were the Earth's most ancient original inhabitants. This was a serious error though an understandable one at the time when the science of human origins was less advanced, that sections of the Chinese state establishment still maintain it today in the face of new and compelling counter evidence is another matter. Chinese museums and schools still teach the plain nonsense that the archaic skull of Peking man has distinctive far Asian features, end quote. Kind of funny how that works out. Mm-hmm. But these remains have appeared in some fiction before. The, the Philip K. Dick has a book called The Crack in Space that has them. Carolyn G. Hart's Skullduggery, Robert Sawyer's short story Peking Man, Catherine V. Forrest's Sleeping Bones, Nicole Monet's Lost in Translation, and Amy Tan's The Bone Setter's Daughter all make references to hmm. these bones. It's all over the place, to say the least. I'm actually thinking about using them in some of my fiction. I'm not going to reveal like the title or the concept or anything, but yeah, I've I've got like a kind of a dinosaur, what am I trying to say, cryptozoology dinosaur novel I started a couple of years ago and haven't finished. I'm I'm thinking about bringing the uh, Peking Man bones into that. Well, that sounds like a, a really interesting idea for you right there. All right, John, well, unless you have anything to add, I think we can start wrapping things up. What do you think? Yeah, I think you covered it. All right, here we go. All righty. Well, with that, we can move on to the Patreon shout outs. I shall ask thee once again, will you tell my name? Danny Demena, Eli Harris, Bex from Redeemed Otaku, Damon Makes Some Noise, The Cellcast, Eric Anderson, Ted Williams, 
Winja the Ninja, Brad Batman, Edelman, Christopher Reiner, the Indiscreet One, Jake Hambrick, Edwin Gonzalez, Matt Walsh, but not that Matt Walsh, Jonathan Cordright, Robert Kidd, and our newest patron, Leon Campbell. And finally, Tofu Fury. Given the fact that we have been covering Shaw Brothers movies the last couple of months, Tofu Fury sounds like a Shaw Brothers movie to me. Yeah. I've been joking for a long time that this should be a Jackie Chan movie where he plays a chef. Mm, yeah, that's a good idea. I, uh, this needs to happen. This needs to happen somehow. Somehow. Anyway, now we got to let all of you know what our next couple episodes are going to be. So speaking of Godzilla Redux, we got a big episode coming in the next one which will have my friends Drew and Jacob from the Selkas joining us because we're not doing Destroy All Monsters. Because reasons. Trust me, there's method to my madness. Instead, we will be covering Monster Wars, the three-parter from Godzilla the series, which is basically Destroy All Monsters. <laughs> but animated in nice 90s. <laughs> yeah. Did you, ever, did you catch that one, John? Did you I watch that, that. John? Uh, yeah, I, I I got to see that on TV as a child. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like I said, it's basically destroy all monsters. <laughs> I should also mention that there will be a semi-impromptu, yes, I know, the second time this season alone, episode with Daniel DeManna on the just-released-by-SRS-Cinema classic quote-unquote kaiju film the whale god and the reason we're doing it is because at one point daniel and i were going to be on that disc's special features i'll explain later stay tuned and then jimmy and i were moving out we have an itinerary to stick to. We're going from Hong Kong here. It's been fun, but we will be going from Hong Kong to South Korea, where we will be looking for that country's most famous kaiju. Take a wild guess, John. Who do you think it, who oh, do you think it is? It, their most famous is undoubtedly Wang Magui. <laughs> nice is try. it the host? Nope. That's on the that's slated. Both of those movies are slated for this season. Oh, it's Ape. Because no. Ape was from Oh, South of course Korea. it would be Ape. It has to be Ape. I mean, come on. Or Pol Polga Sari. Uh, Polga, that's North Korea. <laughs> that is slated for this season. No, Yongari, Monster <laughs> from oh, the Deep, 1967. I've never heard of that one. Uh, right. <laughs> you need to get Neil Reby on for that one. He is the number one Yongari fan. Well, funny you should mention that, John, <laughs> because Neil Reby is, in fact, going to be the guest for that episode. And yes, I will be tapping into his unironic expertise and love of this strange, 
strange little South Korean kaiju film. All right, back to the show. But yeah, so we'll need to go find that crazy dancing kaiju and get him back to the island too. Because that's part of my contractual obligations this year. Hmm. I hope you've got some ideas about how to do it, Jimmy. You're working on it. Of course you're working on it. Anyway, John, we've now come to a very important part of the podcast and one that apparently has gotten very parody-worthy among my circle of friends, the shameless self-promotion. So I'll just let everybody know. At this point, my other podcast, Henshin Men, which is about Henshin Heroes, it's wrapping up and going a hiatus, but there's a lot of good stuff to go check out there, including an episode on Super Inframan. So I've got two podcasts on, on that movie now. And then also check out The Power Trip, A Journey Through the Power Rangers franchise, or as we're calling it this season, Power Trip to Taisaku Sentai Pod Ranger, because we're going over 30th anniversary Power Ranger material and some Super Sentai. So go check all of those out. And my author website, NathanJSMarchand.com. And I should mention here, because I haven't mentioned it yet, I just contributed to a book called Big Bug Cinema that has been nominated for a Rondo Award. Anyway, I'm finished. John, what do you got? Well, just uh, thanks to everyone who continues to buy my books so that I can continue to eat. And <laughs> the newest one that will be out by the time this episode airs will be Lost Films of the Lost World, which is basically just, you know, like a lost or unmade dinosaur movie book where I talk about things like Jim Danforth's Farnsworth's uh, Folly, the lost footage from the Crater Lake Monster, just a lot of cool stuff that uh, I think a lot of people don't know about. Okay, yeah, so just go on Amazon and type in John's name and you're going to find a whole slew of books. Just be warned, he likes making new editions. Yeah, yeah, I think this is going to be my last new edition of Kong Unmade and the Lost Films with the, the Japanese Monsters Unmade. I think it's that's the last editions, I'm pretty sure. You hope, right? Or we can yeah. hope, right? 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 Anyway. Thanks again for coming on, John. It's always a pleasure to have you on, and I hope we get a, a chance to hang out in person again sometime, whether that's at yeah. G-Fest or some other function, because yeah, I miss hopefully you. Hopefully so. <laughs> and yes, I'm going to find more excuses to have you on at least once a season, because that's how I'll roll. <laughs> yeah, sounds good to me. All right. What? Seriously? You finally found Utam? All right, John, I have contractual obligations to fulfill. We need to go recapture that crazy ape and get him back to the island. Jimmy, cue the credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. Our executive producer is Damon Noyes. If you want to be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at monsterislandfilmvault at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter and our many colorful characters using the links in the show notes, which are on our website, monsterislandfilmvault.com. Don't forget to join our official Facebook group and Discord server, The Markalite Lounge. Our podcast logo was designed by Rebecca Hudgens. 
Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at super underscore r underscore illustrations. Sound effects sourced from freesound.org and created by JP Gant. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live at by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack and The Opened Way by Koatani from Shadow of the Colossus. Additional music includes Every Country Has a Monster, performed by Jonah Ray, and Chant My Name, a cover by Second Archive of the Song by Masaki Endo. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can even support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. MIFV is a Moonlighting Ninjas media production and a proud member of Pod Nation. Sayonara! Sayonara!